Well, if you'll turn in a copy of God's Word to Psalm chapter 2. We're taking a break from our series in Philippians as we spend time this Advent series uh, looking at the coming Messiah from the Psalms. We often don't think of the Old Testament as a place that points us to Jesus, but do you know that Jesus' name is written on every page? Every jot and tittle, every iota, every scribble of Scripture points us to Jesus. And in the Psalms, we have certain Psalms that we commonly call Messianic Psalms. They point us to the Messiah. God's people had long longed for, expected, and yearned for the coming of their Messiah. We have several Psalms that we'll be looking at um, this Advent season, which very clearly point us to the coming Son of Man, Son of uh, God, the Son of David. So reading from Psalm chapter 2, hear now the word of the Lord. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He who sits in, excuse me, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we pray that by your spirit you would help us to understand your word today in a a way that would deeply impact us, that would change us, that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. Father, give us ears to hear and eyes to see and grant the the preacher and the hearer alike your anointing. In the name of our King Jesus, we pray. Amen. You know, God has always been king over all of creation. There isn't a square inch of all of this vast universe, this vast cosmos, all of creation over which God does not exercise full control, reign, and rule. This also applies to his people. The Lord has always been the king of his people, even when they didn't want him to be. From the creation of Adam and Eve to now, and will be for all of eternity, God is king. But you know, there was a time in which God's people uniquely sought to deny, to reject God as being their king over them. We read about this in 1 Samuel 8. When God's people come to Samuel crying out for a king, they wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted to have a king whom they could see. 
They wanted a king who could lead them valiantly into battle and would lead them home in procession of victory. They made an idolatry out of having a king. They did this as they rejected the true king, their king, the king of kings, the Lord of all creation. So the Lord gave them a king. First Saul, whose line failed after his disobedience, and then David, whose line continues even now. Our Savior is the son of David, and his rule and reign is a fulfillment of the line of David all those many hundreds of years ago. Advent, you know, is a time in which we celebrate the coming of the first advent, the first coming of Christ. He is our king, but it is more than that too. We shouldn't just look backwards. We should also look forwards. For Christ has come as king, but he will come more fully as king when he ushers in his kingdom in its fullness when he comes again. We yearn for that day. And just like the Old Testament saints, as we read in Psalm 2, yearn for the true coming of the king who will fulfill every jot and tittle of this psalm, we too yearn for and long for the return of our king, the Messiah. He has come once and he will come again. There are several good kings in the Old Testament. Uh, with David certainly being the standard bearer, right? All all the the good kings in the Old Testament are all compared to David. You know, under David and later his son Solomon, uh, the the bounds of Israel were, were their biggest, their fullest, the widest. And the national worship of Yahweh, of the Lord, was at its height and climax. You know, many pagan nations were crushed under their rules. And in the days of Solomon, silver was so accounted as stones because there was just so much of it. These were good days. And so we read of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 speaks of the the triumph of the Davidic king, of, of David and all those kings who would come later in his own line. But there's tension, right? There's tension in that none of the kings of uh, Israel and later of Judah, the southern kingdom, none of these kings fully fulfilled the words that we read of in Psalm 2. None of the kings fully um, subjugated all the, the nations around them to their own power, their own rule. Even the good kings, like David, a man after God's own heart, sinned in a very public way in adultery and then killed one of his top 30 men, Uriah. Uriah wasn't some lowly guy he had to ask the name of. Uriah was one of his 30 mighty men, and he had him killed. And then Solomon, with his 700 wives and 300 concubines, and at the end of his life, he would serve Not only the Lord, but also other foreign gods led astray by as many, many wives. There's tension built into these texts, making them and us yearn for something fuller, setting an expectation up of the coming Messiah, the coming true King who will truly reign and rule in righteousness and justice and bring full and final peace for God's people. This tension is felt even more as we look at Israel's history. 
You remember that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom were divided. The northern kingdom taking the name of Israel. The top northern ten kingdoms in Judah and Benjamin and the southern kingdom went by Judah. And after a while they were both sent into exile. Where was this king? Where was this Davidic king who would, who would make the nations his heritage upon asking from the Lord? And when he asked from the Lord that would make um, everything, all the earth, his possession. Where was this king? And then one empire after next would rule and reign over Israel. First the Babylonians, then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then finally the Romans would all exercise control over them. Where? Where was this Davidic king? Where was this great messianic king who would make all things right and then 400 years of silence? What America's what, 240 some odd years old or 240 I guess this year? For 400 years, they never heard from the Lord. Where was this king? Come thou long expected Messiah. Come thou long expected king. Psalm 2 was not just written about the Davidic kings of old, but ultimately was written about the true son of David, our Savior Jesus. And my friends, our king has come. Well, verses 1 through 3, we we find a time of conflict in which sometime in the Davidic line, um, there was a, a gathering of foreign nations that had come and had gotten tired of being under the thumb of Israel or, or Judah. And they came together, and where they used to fight each other, now they have joined together. The nations are gathering, the kings are plotting in vain, and they're coming to overthrow the rule of God's people and God's king. They're saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But they're doing so in vain. They're doing so noisily. They're doing so against a king who will reign over them. You know, you cannot be submissive to a king without wanting something to do with his kingdom. You cannot be submissive to a king and want nothing to do with his kingdom. And so when they were rebelling against the kingdom, they were rebelling against the king. And when they were rebelling against the king, they were rebelling against the Lord God. You know, ambassadors have unique privileges all over the world, don't they? In fact, if you were to attack an ambassador or an embassy, you were actually attacking the the, the native country. And it would mean war. And so here they are coming together and they are attacking the Lord's anointed. And in doing so, they are attacking the Lord. Well, if we fast forward 600 some odd years to the coming of Christ, of who this psalm is really written, the roles are reversed. God's people are the ones that are under the cords and bonds of foreign nations. They are no longer under their own control, but are under the control of the Romans. There seemed to be an endless supply of one conqueror to the next. They just seemed to trade places. God's people had been vanquished. These nations were no longer raging against the Jews and their God, and indeed in their eyes the Jews were but a footnote in an empire, a Roman empire, that stretched from Egypt to France. So the turn of the millennium, the first century of Christ's birth, 
There's a time of tension and silence. Where, O oh God, is this king? Then after all that waiting, after all that yearning, after being disappointed year after year, then came the true king, King Jesus. The nations would still rage and they would still plot in vain, but this time, when they did so, they sought to oppose the arrival of the new king. They were opposing not just God's man on earth, they were opposing God himself on earth. This time they were not, uh, it was not the king, excuse me, this time not only were they opposing uh, the king, the Lord's anointed, but the Lord of the anointing. When they sought to burst their bonds, they did so by putting bonds and cords on the God who had made the flax from which the bonds were made. The king had arrived. But you know, this is the the image of what it looks like on earth, right? This next stanza in verses 4 through 5, we see what it looks like from God's perspective. He who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. You know, this picture is of the Lord sitting. Who sits in heaven? It is the Lord only upon his throne. You know, from from Israel's perspective, it looked like everything was upside down, right? Perhaps you've been there when everything in your life seems upside down as well. When from our perspective, everything is crazy. Here are the nations plotting, Lord, don't you know that the kingdoms are coming against me? Lord, don't you know that they are noisily assembling with their, their spears and their, and their swords rattling against their shields? Is the Lord worried? Is the true king of Israel worried? No. He sits enthroned in heaven and he laughs. He holds him in derision. It's like a little child who is trying to wail on you and you can just hold out your hand and keep him from you. You're not worried. It certainly looked like there was plenty of reason to worry from Israel's perspective. But not from God's. He mocks them for the foolishness of their plans, as one commentator said. And he reconfirms the power structure in verse 6. He says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And guess what? I'm going to speak to them in my wrath. I'm going to speak to them in my fury. And that's all it's going to take. We can fast forward to Christ's time. Another round of fulfillment as we think about his disciples. Have you ever put yourself in Christ's disciples' place? Here is the Messiah that you have put your hope in, and then he's taken away. He's led away in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then you hear the rumors of the verdict of these three trials that happened And then you see him nailed to a cross after he'd been stripped and beaten. And you begin to think about those cries of Israel of old, where is this king? I thought this was the king. Certainly from our perspective, from the disciples' perspective, everything looked upside down. They declared him guilty. I'm sure the disciples must have thought, guilty of what? It looked like the Lord's anointed had lost But that's just from their perspective, isn't it? 
They couldn't see the big picture. The father sat enthroned in heaven. And saying, as for my anointed, I have placed him on my holy mountain. On Zion. Here is the Lord's anointed. Here is our king who is being crucified outside of Mount Zion. Here is the son as he is dealing with the wrath and fury that we deserve by dying as a sacrifice that we um, need for our salvation. He came to bring final peace. He came to hold his enemies in derision. He came to make peace with his people that we might be saved, that we might have a true king. What about his rule and his reign in verses 7 through 9? I will tell the decree, the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask for me and I will make the nations your heritage and the end of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Um, Thomas and I had fun uh, two, three months ago when we had our our last uh, watermelon and we let it stay out a little too long. And so we grabbed uh, golf clubs and we started having fun with the watermelon and it was just going everywhere. And do you know that watermelon stood no chance against those golf clubs, even in the hands of a three-year-old? And that's the picture here. That's the picture here, even as you would take a rod of iron to a clay pot that is useless, it has no chance of standing up to the one who is wielding it. So too here we see that the true king will reign, and he will rule even when things look upside down from our perspective. As we think about the Davidic king, he just merely had to ask the Lord and and he would give him the nations as his heritage and he would make the ends of the earth his possession. This picture of an ever-growing rule and reign. But there's tension here, isn't there? Because after David and Solomon, the, the, the kingdom just kept contracting and contracting and contracting. Setting us up for the arrival of the true king. A true king would come and no longer would this kingdom be one just of the the ethnic line of Abraham. No longer would it be confined to a geographic region. He he makes the nations his heritage because the nations are brought in and they are saved. And now salvation is free to all, both Jew and Gentile alike. Come and I will make the ends of the earth your possession. The father would grant to his son everything he asked for. The father would grant to him everything on earth. The father would grant him his kingdom. You know, sometimes it feels like the church is shrinking worldwide. We think about this in America. Certainly the numbers in America don't look great. But but did you know that the church worldwide is growing leaps and bounds? Africa and China. China, there are um, probably soon to be more believers than there are Americans in this world. We think there are about 80 million some odd Christians in in China, somewhere between 80 and 120 million born-again evangelical believers. That's a staggering number. 
In Africa, in the Presbyterian Church of Uganda, there are more converts every day than there are every year in our denomination. Praise the Lord. The fastest growing church in all of the world is found in Iran. The second fastest growing is found in Afghanistan. The Lord's on his throne and his kingdom is winning. We might feel the same tension that those Old Testament saints feel. But no one can withstand the rule of our Savior. Verses 10 through 12 Tell us that we ought to submit to the king. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. The, the writer encourages the enemies of our king to wise up. Don't be silly. You can't oppose a lord or his anointed. To serve the king is to serve the Lord. So give up your foolish plans. Lay down your arms and serve the Lord with fear. He tells them to kiss the son, a sign of submission and loyalty. You know, in the days of kings of old in England, you would come and you would show your submission to the king or the queen in a very specific way. You would kiss their ring. You still do this in the Catholic world today with, with the bishop. But you know, if you're one of his enemies and you are now one of his allies, if you've been defeated and you were called to kiss his ring, you know, you had to come close, close enough to do this. You didn't know if he was going to kill you or accept you. Our salvation is only to be found in kissing the Son. And accepting his rule and reign in our lives. There's no other salvation. There's nowhere else to turn. There's one king. That one king has come. In the first advent he came, the anticipated Messiah, the king who came to set his people free. And just as the wise men bowed down before King Jesus in worship and reverence and awe, so too we are called to lay down our lives before him if we too are to be saved. True refuge from our enemies, the true enemies of sin and our guilt before God, these things can only be found in the Son, the King of kings, Jesus. Have you kissed the Son? Have you accepted His rule in your life? He he rules over your life whether you like it or not. Have you accepted His rule in your life? Have you kissed Him? Have you submitted to the King? Well, as we've looked at the Davidic king and the Messianic king, these really are the same thing. We read in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Here is the one whom Israel has been looking for for all these years. The true king who will set up his kingdom. He is the son of David. You know, people sat around and they shared eyewitness accounts of Christ's coming, his first coming. But you know, I wonder if in heaven we'll sit around around coffee. We either won't drink coffee or we'll drink the world's best coffee ever, one or the other. We'll sit around coffee and we'll tell of the day when Christ came and made all things new. The king has come once and the king is coming again.
Let's pray. Our King Jesus, we thank you that you have vanquished the enemies of sin and our guilt. We thank you that you have bound Satan and we yearn for the day when um, death is finally and fully defeated. And we will live with you forever. So come, Lord Jesus. Come, King Jesus. Amen.